This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Wow. Good morning. (laughs) Um, Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. It's on page 621 in the Bibles in front of you. Um, Chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the text. Father, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, uh, that we have been the gracious recipients of your word. God, this morning I ask as we uh, receive from it, I ask that you would make our hearts soft. Would you open the ears of our hearts and enlighten the eyes of our hearts and um, make us susceptible to the truth of your word this morning? I ask that you by the Spirit would um, reveal yourself in our midst. God, would you do more than what we can do through um, even teaching concepts or declaring truths? Spirit of God, would you take the word as it's proclaimed and would you enliven and instruct our hearts by it? That we would see you, that we would know you, that we would be conformed more into the image of your son. God, I ask for a spirit of revelation to uh, move in this, in this sanctuary this morning among our hearts and minds. Would you let us see Jesus this morning? Let, him, let us see him high and lifted up And would our lives be reoriented because you've made yourself known to us? Would you shape us, mold us, conform us? 
we ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Hey, so for the next uh, two weeks, Lord willing, we're going to camp out here in Isaiah 62. I think that many of the truths that this passage uh, teaches are really important for us right now as a people. Um, So important that I think it's uh, essential that we don't rush past them. I was telling somebody this week and thinking through uh, one, of the, one of the guys from Johnson County asked me why I broke the chapter up and I said, because I didn't want to have to preach God's commitment, God's delight and intercession all in one sermon. Uh, it felt like a pretty tall order to me. So I decided uh, we, could, we could spend a couple weeks in this text. But before we jump into the text itself, I want to spend just a minute uh, to remind us where we're at in the book of Isaiah, what's going on in order to situate us to the importance of this chapter and the truths that we're going to look at in the next couple weeks. So we find ourselves in a smaller subsection within the last major section of the book. Uh, the last major section, if you're not familiar with the book, is chapters 56 to 66. And it's all about uh, uh, words of God spoken into a community that finds themselves in the waiting period. These chapters are specifically spoken to a, to a generation that was in, yet in the future to Isaiah's ministry when they would live between the times of God's promise to save and the fulfillment of that promise. And again and again, as we've walked through these chapters, we've seen that we are in somewhat of a similar place to these people. As we live in a moment where many of the truths of God's word, his promises, his promises to save and redeem and restore have been fulfilled in the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And yet we find ourselves waiting for the day when we see those promises made full in their consummation. And we've noted again and again that the waiting time as we live in this tension creates all sorts of tensions inside of us, tensions to unbelief, tensions to doubt, despair, hopelessness, and tensions outside of us, opposition, relational conflict. And it's into that kind of situation that these words come to us and are, are intended to strengthen us and, and give us sturdiness in the certainty of God's promises, his purposes, as we wait for the day when they will be fulfilled. But this smaller subsection that we find ourselves in within this last major chunk of Isaiah are chapters 60 to 62. And these are all about the final work of God's salvation. We saw in chapter 60 what would happen, what the world is going to look like when God fully and finally renews and restores all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Last week in Isaiah 61, we saw the means by which God is going to accomplish this by his anointed servant, the one who would come and proclaim the day of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of God that would come to bind up the brokenhearted and set captives free and proclaim the truth of God to his people. In Isaiah 62, we're going to see uh, a particular way that the prophet ties these things together as he demonstrates the certainty of God's work, the outcome of God's work, and the response that will happen in light of these promises. 
So before we dive into the text itself, let me just give the main points I want you to walk away with this morning. If there's no other truths that you grab onto that sink into your minds or your hearts, my hope is this morning that we'll just see two things from these first five verses. I I hope you walk away with these two truths resounding in your mind and heart as you leave this morning. And that they are, number one, I want you to see God's unceasing commitment to his people. God's unceasing commitment to his people. And number two, I want you to see God's unending delight in his people. God's unending delight in his people. Those are the two things that I hope we get this morning that wash over us, that reorient us as we come to this text. So look with me at verse one in Isaiah 62. The verse begins with a speaker in the first person. They declare that they are about something. They have a purpose. They're, they have a task in front of them. Look with me at verse one. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until... I'm going to just stop there because this puts us face to face with the first reality that I want us to be confronted with this morning, that there is a purpose, there is a a task at hand that is taken up here at the beginning. We see here the Lord break in through the mouth of the prophet and declare that he is about something. He has a purpose. He has something that he's devoted to. Something that you could say consumes him. Something that he will not rest until it's accomplished. I love the picture here of the Lord saying, I will not be quiet. I won't stop. I won't relent. I will not cease until this task is accomplished. Here we see the Lord lay out for us the motivation that he has for maintaining this zealous energy that we've seen him set forth his task uh, toward throughout the book. Right throughout Isaiah, we've seen this phrase ring out again and again. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will make this happen. And here we see one of the, the realities of what motivates that zealous energy toward accomplishing his work. He says, simply, it's for the sake of Zion. Now, we must see a couple things if we're going to understand this rightly. First, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is Zion, right? Who is Zion? And then I think we can look at what it means for, for God to say, for the sake of Zion, I will not relent. So Zion functions in a couple ways, both in the book of Isaiah and throughout the scriptures. First, it is another name for the historical city of Jerusalem, facing real circumstances, real hardships, real difficulties. Throughout much of the book, God has spoken to the city of Jerusalem. And one thing you have to know about the Old Testament, particularly about Old Testament prophecy, is it's very commonplace for, in prophetic literature, the prophet to speak to a city as the representative of the people that dwell within it. 
speak to it as if it's a person. So there's oftentimes as you're reading the Old Testament, the prophets, you will see them speak to a city as though it is a living person. And what it is meant to uh, show you is uh, they're speaking to all of the people who dwell in it. This representation of its people. And they take on these characteristics, right? A city that is uh, destroyed or a city that is uh, unrighteous or wicked or sinful. Or we see here a city that God is working on behalf of. So regularly God speaks this way. However, the idea of Zion is not only focused on the city of Jerusalem. Throughout the scriptures, and we see in Isaiah's prophecy as well, the idea of Zion is a picture of what God is going to do in and among all of his redeemed throughout history. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this because it's oftentimes difficult for us as we read through the scriptures, we could fall off uh, the wagon one of two ways when we come across uh, promises to Zion or Jerusalem. One, one way we can fall off is we go, these are literal, uh, specific, we're waiting to see times when God does these things for a geographic plot of land, and, and, and we're waiting for that. Or we could just say, you know, as, as you've heard people say before, uh, just anytime you see Israel or Jerusalem or anything, just put the church right? And neither of those is actually true. What we see here is God speaks to this place and these people that he has made covenant with as the representative of his redeemed and covenant people throughout history. God has one people, one people, all of those who are joined to him by faith in Christ. That's, that's the reality of God's people. So we see that the author of Hebrews lays that out for us. And so when we see that here, I want us to just understand this. Look with me at verse 22. The author of Hebrews is writing about, we aren't those who are in Christ, like those who came to Sinai to a place that could be touched and, and that was shaking as God spoke the law to his people. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So he's saying, people of God, right now, in Christ, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This is the reality when you assemble, when you come together, you've been drawn up into the purposes of God, made one as God's people in Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable, to, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So throughout the scriptures, particularly in the prophetic literature, the promises to the city of Zion serve as a picture or a type of a heavenly city where God's people will dwell together with him forever. There is such a union between the city of God and the people who dwell there that to say God is working for Zion's sake is simply to say that he is acting for the sake of his people. 
Understanding the identity of Zion, we can now see that it is for the sake of his people that God declares that he will not be silent and he will not rest. Now, I want you to be pleasantly and slightly disoriented by this, by what this passage is is saying, by the fact that in the first verse of this passage, God is declaring that he acts for the sake of or the purpose of his people. Now, we're often quick to highlight, rightly so, or emphasize or run quickly to the motive of God's glory in his action. And we see that all throughout the scripture, right? I act for my name's sake, God will say, or for my glory, for my purposes and my majesty to be seen above all things. And we are quick to run there often, and we're often reticent or hesitant to uh, highlight or emphasize or look at the places that might sound like they are people-oriented in God's purposes. But what we see, we have to note what this text is saying. This text says, from God's own mouth, It is for the sake of my people that I'm acting. Now, you can't separate the two, right? For the sake of the people, we'll find out here in a minute, is for their transformation, for their experience of redemption and salvation, which ultimately brings supreme glory to the name of God. However, I do want us to see that God declares that he is committed to his people. God is committed to his people, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned something or we deserve his commitment. We see that all throughout the scriptures. He says, hey, if you get uh, a whiff of the fact that I chose you because of anything other than my own choice, you're outside of where I'm at, right? I didn't pick you because you were the greatest. I didn't pick you because you were the smartest. I didn't pick you because you were the most righteous or religious or able to show your goodness before me. I picked you because I picked you. And because I picked you, I am committed to you, God says. Because I chose you, I will act for Zion's sake. I will not be quiet. I will not stop. I will not relent. I will not give up. I will not grow tired, God says. I want us to realize this morning that this is what this text is saying. God has an unending and unyielding commitment to act for the sake of the redeemed. Now this truth is intended to fill us with hope. It is intended to fill us with stability where it looks like nothing is going right. Right? In in the midst of where we find ourselves, in the midst of the waiting, where we live between the times when we've seen the salvation of God made known in Jesus Christ, and yet as we look into the world, it does not seem like the promises of God are coming to pass. Right? It doesn't seem to our natural eyes like this is the way it should be. 
and we are waiting for the day when he makes all things new. This word should provide stability to us and strength to us. God says, for the sake of my people, I am not quiet. Even when it looks like I might be quiet, I am not quiet. I am not relenting. I am not stopping. I am not ceasing. This word was spoken to people who would hear it at one of the lowest parts in Israel's history. And yet this word thunders without question. For Zion's sake, I will not relent. I will not rest. I will not give up. Now I want to invite us before we move on to consider two things as we look at God's commitment here. Just by way of invitation or responding to this, what are, what are two things that this reality invites us to as we engage it or encounter it? Number one, I want it to hit us that this truth does, it's intended to give us remarkable confidence in the midst of the waiting. Remarkable confidence in God's commitment to fulfill his promises. God declares, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to keep at it until something happens. This means that we can right now, wherever we find ourselves, no matter how difficult it seems, no matter how far off God's promises may quote unquote feel to you, you can be sure that the God of all eternity is not silent. He's not resting even now as he works to bring about redemption for the sake of his elect. That truth is stabilizing, stabilizing right now, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how hard it is to imagine the realities of God's redemptive purposes coming to fruition, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how distracted you are, disoriented you are, uncertain you are, the truth that God is acting, that he's not going to give up. He doesn't look at your situation and go, yeah, that one's too much. That one's too hard. That one's too difficult. It's too cloudy. He says, I won't stop. This is my commitment. He's, he declares that. So it gives us remarkable confidence. The second thing that I, I've felt invited to in this is in my relation to how I see others around me, if this is God's commitment to his people, this in so many ways demands, demands that I, by God's grace, seek to be more patient and more merciful with God's people, right? Like, I know there's this real easy way that we love or people in, in the world love to like bash on the church. Like I love Jesus. I just don't like his people or like all that kind of stuff. You don't get the option, right? God says, I'm committed to my people. I am committed to my people. 
And so I will suffer long. I will deal with kindness. I will be patient. I will be merciful. I am at work. I will not be silent. That invites us into a certain way of relating to one another as well. That truth could shape and change how I view you, how you view me, how we view one another. What if we looked at one another and said, you are one that God is committed to. He's at work in. He is not quiet right now in your life. He's not drawing back. He's not giving up. He is unceasing in his commitment to bring forth redemption in your life. Changes a lot. That changes a lot. But what is God's commitment toward? The remainder of this section we'll look at, it gives us the answer. In short, God won't stop until his people are transformed. That's, that's the short way of saying it. A few weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 60, I mentioned that one of the central themes that you could write over the book of Isaiah is the transformation of Zion. Consider with me again back all the way to the beginning of the book in chapter one, Isaiah starts from the jump denouncing the city the city of of Zion, the faithful city that had become a harlot, the one where righteousness had once dwelled, but now murderers dwelt therein. And all of the book has been this demonstration of what God, the lengths to which God would go to bring salvation and transformation to his people. God promises that he would not be silent, that he wouldn't be quiet, that he wouldn't relent until Zion's righteousness goes forth like the brightness and until her salvation burns like a torch. Look at that in the end of verse one. He says this, this is why, this is the end of the until. He does this until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and until her salvation burns like a torch until the nations see the righteousness and the kings your glory. You will then be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. We see here again the ultimate end of God's redemptive work. He promises that he won't stop working until he brings about the absolute and perfect salvation of his people. We've seen week in and week out in Isaiah this promise. God is going to take a people of unrighteousness and work on their behalf until they are righteous. He's going to take a people who have practiced injustice and bring forth their salvation so that it is seen and portrayed before all. This work will be long and hard. It will consist of discipline and he will starve them out. He will tenderly call them. He will send his servant. He will war against sin and its effects. He will redeem and restore. And this work will not be completed until their righteousness shines out like the brightness of the sun, until they reflect the very brightness of the glory of their God. But not only do we see here that they are going to shine, but they will be given a new name by the mouth of the Lord himself. The concept of a name throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, has to do with the essence of a person. 
your identity. The identity of a person is bound up in their name. So to say that a new name is given is a way of saying that such a deep and wholesale transformation is going to happen. That the person is given a new name, a new identity, a new way by which they're understood. Whereas they had one identity before, now they will have a new identity. The people will become to the Lord like a prized possession, a crown of beauty or a royal diadem in the hand of their God. He's just walking through different ways of saying there's going to be wholesale transformation. Their righteousness will shine. Their salvation will blaze like a torch. They'll have a new name. They will be so uh, perfected in glory that I will hold them up like a precious diadem in my hand. I've been thinking all morning. Yesterday, uh, one of my sons went to Target and bought like the silliest, dumb little toy. Um, and this toy, I don't even begin to understand. It's, it's literally one piece of plastic and it's a design um, masterpiece. It makes 75 different noises. Uh, it cost a dollar, and I don't know how this thing can make as many noises as it does. But my youngest son goes, and he literally has not taken it out of his hand and shown everybody that he's come into contact with this new toy. And this thing is like remarkably silly. Think of what God is saying. He says, I am going to work such a work of redemption. And hey, it didn't cost him nothing. It cost him his son. It cost him the price of the life of his son, laid down, given freely. He says, through that, I will so transform my people that I will take them like my most prized possession and I will hold them up for all to see. That's what he's saying here. I am going to take them and they will be like this crown of jewels that I hold up in my hand for all to wonder at. He says, that's what I'm working at. That's what I won't be quiet until. That's what I won't stop until happens. God promises here that he will take a sinful, wretched, broken, wicked people. He'll wash their sins. He'll set them in right relationship with him. And he will so fundamentally change their essence that they could be called by a new name. And he will make them like a beautiful possession that he holds up for all to see. And we know that this is done and accomplished through the work of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of Isaiah's promises gave up his own life to the point of death so that he might provide forgiveness and washing for sins. He was the one anointed by God, by the spirit of God in order to bring liberty to the captives, to bring freedom to those who were enslaved, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of God's salvation to all who would hear and put their faith in him. In Christ, God has demonstrated his commitment to not be silent, to not rest 
until there was a way provided for his people to be made righteous, for salvation to come, for them to be washed, for them to reflect his righteousness and his salvation like a burning torch, for them to receive a new name and for them to be made into a holy possession. Now any and all who put their faith in him are freely given, freely forgiven, accepted, made righteous before God and welcomed into his family. Yet for those who are in Christ, the experience of salvation and the promise of transformation is secured, but does not end in these verses. For those in Christ Jesus, I think there's a final aspect of Isaiah's prophecy that we're welcomed into experiencing and rejoicing in as his people. Isaiah promises us that we'll be given a new name, but he waits to tell us what it is. He says you'll be given a new name, but he waits until the end of the picture to actually speak to us what it is. Look with me at verse four. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land will no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. The new identity that the people of God is given or are given is thundered here from the heart of God. Delivered to us in a name. My delight is in her. This is one of the most profound truths that we can stand under in our relationship with God. This truth is not enough for us to give assent to intellectually. It's not enough to just have the concept of it rattle around in our brain. We have to let this truth, by God's grace, asking him to permeate the fabric of how we think about ourselves how we imagine our successes, our failures in life, how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world. The concept of a new name or a new identity demonstrates the definitive answer to the ultimate questions that we ask, right? Our identity is nothing more than the answer we give to the question, who am I? And we answer that question all sorts of different ways. What we value what we find worth in, what we think gives us success, what we think makes our life meaningful, significant, all of those things. All those questions that rattle around inside of us that really say, who am I? Names and identities speak to. And God declares that I have a name for my people. God declares that all of his work is for a purpose, to bring forth such wholesale and lasting transformation among his people that they will be given a new identity. And this new identity is rooted in his delight for his people. Look at this. He names us, my delight is in her. Why? Is this just like some pet name, some new name that he just throws out? He says, I'm going to call her this, but it's not real. He says, no, the end of verse four, there's a word there for, because, because my delight is actually in her. I will name her that because it's the most true thing that can be said about her. My delight is in you, says the Lord. 
And this is true of you if you're in Christ. No longer is your name forsaken. No longer is your name forgotten. No longer is your name failure. No longer is your name outcast, abandoned. No longer is your name all of those things, condemned, wretched. Your name has been changed. God declares over you, my delight is in you. This is who you are in the eyes of the eternal God. Think about this. I want you to think about this as we come to this part of the text. And he says, this is the name because it's true. And what he's about to say is give us a picture of why we can settle into that. What do you imagine? Let me give you a thought experiment. What do you imagine? You don't have to do this in the moment, but if you close your eyes and you imagined yourself walking into the presence of God, what's the look on his face? What's the look on his face? Is it angry? Is it disappointed? Is it ashamed? Is it too busy? Is it dismissive? Is it, I don't have time for you? Like what, what's the look? And we all live with one or multiple ones. We all have them. What is it? Look with me at verse five. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hey, I want, I want to say something for all of us in this room. If you are in Christ Jesus and the idea that you had was anything other than that moment in a wedding that we all love when the doors open and we watch the groom's face fill with delight and tears and joy and um, nervous energy. If that's anything, if if the look that you have about the face of God is anything other than that, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are mistaken. The word of God declares to you the truth of God's disposition. Like a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you, says the Lord. This is not just a concept. This isn't something to be deduced with our minds. This is an objective reality that is meant to be experienced by us. It's meant to be worked into the fabric of our being. And when I say experienced, I want to I make clear what I mean there. I don't mean when I say experienced like you get some warm, fuzzy feeling about it. When I say experienced, I mean how do you deal with shame and guilt and fear when you're pressed in those places? Do you, when you come face to face with your weakness and your, uh, your um, own sinfulness and your own brokenness in those places, do you have a disposition that runs back to God because of what he has declared to be true about himself and what because is true about you in Christ Jesus? Or do you run away in an attempt 
attempt to fix yourself up or hide yourself or make yourself feel a little better or present a little better. That's what I mean when I say experience the love of God. I do not mean some like warm, tingly, fuzzy, sentimental feeling. I mean, when push comes to shove, the picture you have of the eternal God and his disposition towards you in Christ Jesus and what that does in your emotions, in your affections, in your desires when you come face to face with the weakest, hardest, darkest places of who you are. That's what I mean. To experience this personally is to align our hearts to agree with the truth and to be transformed by the reality of how God relates to us, even in our weakness. So how do we grow in this? How do we grow in the experience of God's unending delight toward us? How do we, how do we ask God to make this more true about us? How do we grow in our experience of it? Let me give you a couple things and then we'll come to the table together this morning. Let me just give you a handful of ways to cultivate an experience of the love of God more consistently. Number one, believe the truth of the life and the death of Jesus Christ as the place where God definitively and objectively demonstrated his love for you. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter five. Romans five, he says, the love of God gets poured into our hearts, poured into our, not poured, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He then roots it in an objective reality. He says, this isn't some sentimentalism. This isn't some wishful thinking. This is real fact. You want to know what the real fact is? Look back at history when a man who was God in the flesh poured out his life unto death and hung on a cross when you hated him. That's demonstration of love. The love of God demonstrated for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. One way to grow and experiencing the love of God is you believe that as the truth. You lay hold of it by faith. You say, that is the moment. Do I have any questions about God's love for me? Let me look at the moment when God showed it, when he demonstrated it, when he definitively and without qualification declared This is what love looks like. Do you want to know that God loves you? Believe that truth. That's number one. Number two, ask God for a greater capacity to experience it. This is what Paul gets at in Ephesians chapter three when he prays for the Ephesians. He begins to pray for them and he says, I'm asking God that by his spirit, he would give you strength in your inner man to experience more the love of God. That which is already true of you. He says you're already rooted and grounded in it. This is already what establishes you. That's already true. However, we lack the capacity to experience it. The problem is not on God's end, it's on ours, right? 
God demonstrates his love. This is what he's like. We are hard of heart, soft or small of capacity. So we ask the spirit to enlarge it. We ask the spirit of God, would you enlarge my heart? Would you expand my capacities to experience and know your love? So we believe the truth. We ask God for greater capacity. Then there's actually something that we can do in the midst of our lives. Number three is regularly align ourselves with the truth. And what I mean by this isn't just uh, conceptually. When I say align ourselves with the truth, I mean take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and in the places where this is hardest for you to believe, you begin to wage war there. What does that look like? In the place of your shortcoming, in the place of your sin, in the place of your weakness, in the place of your shame, rather than weighing yourself down under all of the old names that you have, right? I am, I am the one forsaken. I'm the hopeless one. I'm the one that always does this and this and this and this. In those moments, by faith, what would it look like for you to begin to use the word of God to declare the truth about who you are? Stand up in that place and say, no, that is not true. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. My name is his delight is in me. My name is his delight is in me. This is who I am. God, would you make that more clear to me, more true of me? Make me experience that more. In the places where I'm most tempted to despair and shame and doubt and confusion and my emotions get cloudy and dark under this way of believing, God, I will stand and I will declare the truth of your word even when I don't feel it. This is who I am, not because of my own goodness, not because of my own strength, not because of my own righteousness, but because of the gift that you have given me in Christ. Your delight is in me. Your delight is in me. That is my name. Begin to agree with that truth and align our minds and hearts with that in Jesus' name. And lastly, this one might feel a little backwards to you. It might feel tangential. But as I thought about it and prayed through this, I thought, oh man, this, I think this actually is one of the ways that we experience an increase in walking in the love of God in our lives. Begin to ask God to empower you to love others, to see others the way that he sees them to relate to others with a disposition of grace and gentleness and mercy and compassion like God does. As we grow in that and he empowers us and changes us, one of the ways we experience more of his love is as we seek to, by his grace, love one another. We see that all throughout the scripture. The the two are so intricately tied together. 
ask God for more capacity, more grace, more enabling power to love one another. And again, love is not sentimental. Love is not the way that someone feels when they are around you. Love is behavioral. Love is belief, right? Like, go read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind and patient. It bears all things and hopes all things, endures all things. Has nothing to do with how someone feels around you or how you feel in that moment. It is, this is a disposition of grace and compassion and mercy and tenderness. Ask God for more grace there. That's one of the ways that we can grow in there. We believe the truth of the life and death of Jesus. We ask for greater capacity to experience it. We align our, mar- our, our minds and hearts with the truth. We begin to ask God for more grace to walk in love in our lives. And this morning, we're going to come to the table. And this is a place where we get to every single week do the first one together. We get to come and rejoice in and remember and delight in the objective reality of God's love demonstrated for us. As we come and we receive of the broken body and the shed blood, we realign our minds and hearts and say, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died so that I might have his life, that I might have his righteousness, that I might experience the transforming power of God. We come and we celebrate that. If you believe in that this morning, you're a Christian, and I want to invite you to come and take uh, communion with us. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, glass in the juiceware. We'll have uh, servers in the front, in the middle, and up in the balcony, and a single serve gluten-free to my right down here. If you don't put your faith in Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to not come and take this meal, uh, but stay in your seat. Um, we have prayers on cards that are in your seat back. If you, if you want to know what it might look like for you to pray this morning or have a conversation with God, but don't come and take this meal. This meal is reserved for those who put their faith in Jesus. It's a, it's a meal of remembrance and celebration of the reality that Jesus Christ and him alone uh, is, is through whom we find salvation. So if you're uh, receiving this morning, the servers are going to come forward as I pray for us. And as always, we'll have prayer ministers in our sanctuary that would love to stand with you. There's something you want to respond to God in this morning, a way that he's stirring in your heart or something you need prayer for. They would love to stand with you and for you. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll come and receive from the table together. God, thank you for your word again, and thank you for the truth of your saving power. Thank you that at the cross, you demonstrated your love. Thank you that we don't have to wonder or question or even um, try to make sense of the reality of whether you do love those who are in Christ. You demonstrated it already. God, so would you Uh, in this moment, even begin to speak to us? Would you wash us? Would you uh, renew our minds by the power of your spirit and the power of your truth? 
I ask as we delight in and rejoice in the broken body and shed blood of Christ that we would be renewed and restored and nourished even by faith. Would you come and nourish us, we ask this morning in Jesus' name, amen.